We're a few days away from the 2021 NAIS Online Annual Conference. This year's conference is virtual, which means it's super accessible and highly customizable. One element we love about going virtual is that we can give you access to conference content for 30 days after it ends. You don't have to choose between workshops happening at the same time. You could attend them all if you want to. The conference theme is Beyond These Doors, Activating Our Communities. It's happening February 24th through the 26th. If you haven't registered, there's still time to get in on the fun. Come join us. Transform your practice. Practice transformation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Trustee Table. I'm Anne-Marie Balsano, Director of Leadership and Governance at NAIS, and today I'll be speaking with Dr. Eleonora Bartoli. Eleonora is a licensed psychologist in private practice specializing in trauma, resilience building, and multicultural social justice counseling. She is also a consultant supporting individuals and institutions implement their diversity, equity, and social justice missions. She earned her PhD in psychology, human development, and mental health research from the University of Chicago in 2001. Throughout her career, Dr. Bartoli has held leadership positions in professional organizations at both the state and national levels. She has also presented at numerous conferences and is the author of a number of publications focused on multicultural counseling competence, white racial socialization, and the integration of social justice principles in evidence-based counseling practices. In all of her work, Dr. Bartoli integrates an understanding of brain functioning and neuroscience, focusing on how it informs symptom development, as well as healing and resilience building strategies. Eleonora, thank you for taking a seat at the table today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you know, as what many of us would consider a year filled with trauma and anxiety, 2021 is finally here. And so, you know, I'd really love to hear from you about what does it mean to have a trauma-informed perspective as a school leader or an independent school board as we move into this new year? Yes, 2021, a new dawn, indeed. Mm -hmm. Um, And as much as the new dawn, we're still embedded in much of the realities that has framed really this past year, especially and longer. So in my mind, a trauma-informed perspective, it's putting front and central still uh, in 2021 opportunities for everyone to feel really safe enough. And we can talk more about what the enough part is, but really that's what we're talking about. If we don't feel safe enough, we the truth is that we cannot learn and we cannot grow. I think this past year, everybody, teachers, administrators, um, uh, parents who have been coaching their students to spread their children through this process, we've all felt that challenge of not feeling safe enough. Um, So safety is definitely a prerequisite for learning. Uh, And I do not mean that as a philosophical statement. I mean that literally. I mean that physiologically. That to me is the game changer of using a trauma-informed lens. So my always my main takeaway is that all we do, whether it's administering, learning, teaching, all we do is in a human body. And that's something so obvious in some ways that we kind of forget about it. 
But what does it mean to do all that we do in a human body? Uh, so of course, I'm a psychologist. And so for me, the primary organ that governs my thinking is the nervous system. And so our nervous system is designed in very specific ways. And when we uh, know how it's designed, then we can understand what happens to us. And then almost the answers or how to address it come intuitively and I don't want to say easily because you still have to settle your body and think about it but they are not so mysterious you're not keep looking looking for answers on the outside you really can't find them on the inside so to speak so our bodies are again are governed by a nervous system that is designed in very specific ways the absolute first priority of our bodies to keep us alive. Our bodies love us. <laughs> they've been, they've evolved for uh, tens and hundreds of thousands of years. And the main thing, their main purpose to keep us alive. So the problem is that the survival mechanism that keeps us alive does not allow for learning does not allow for learning new things in that moment. So everybody, I think at this point, has heard about the fly-fight-freeze reaction. So when, uh, whenever we encounter something that we find threatening, and that could be something threatening because we're really sort of physically threatened, but our that part of our physiology actually doesn't know the difference at all between our feelings getting hurt, our social status being in question, or our body being at, at risk, uh, under threat. So whenever our body perceives that we have some degree of fly-by-freeze reactions, which of course is incredibly helpful in the moment if there is a real threat. The problem is that that same reaction shuts down our thinking and empathizing centers. So that part of our brain that allows us to think and empathize, no longer online. So you can imagine no thinking or empathize pretty much spells no learning. <laughs> so, um, so that's what happens. On the other hand, of course, if my body feels okay enough, and again, enough is a keyword. There, there is no perfect safety and there's no perfect okayness. And in fact, we don't need it. We're incredibly resilient and uh, ready to face challenges as a species, really. Um, but whenever we feel okay enough, then we're able to learn. Um, and we're able to learn. I always think that we're able to learn about everything. Yes, in this context, we might think about learning academically, but we can also learn about each other. And I think in this political climate, that's also something so needed and so important. Um, you know, when I look at uh, children, they're so naturally curious. They're eager to learn. Nobody has to teach us how to learn. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we know how to do that. We actually are born to do that. We, we find that rewarding. So, so the question becomes how we feel safe enough. So that again is governed by our physiology, which is the beauty of it. We feel enough in very specific contexts. We feel safe enough um, in specific contexts. And this is, again, sometimes when I, when I move into this section, it feels, uh, oh, this is so Pollyannish. No, it's actually, uh, we are, we are, it's encoded in our DNA. We feel safe enough when we feel loved and cared for. We feel safe enough where we have opportunity to love and care for others. That's why those feelings feel so good. It's not random. Our physiology is designed to both in terms of health and in terms of well-being, which are sort of sometimes separate. Um, the design to grow and feel good around feeling loved and cared for and loving and caring for others. So we are literally designed for love. Mm. Um, so even though when we 
uh, it's obvious that we do what we do in the human body. When we don't understand what that means at this level, basically what we keep bumping into is what I think of mission impossible. Biology will always win. We have evolved tens and hundreds of thousands of years ago. Um, and that, that part of the nervous system, it is powerful, beautiful, and yet not designed for the kind of constant assaults that we have in 21st century living. And so we really have to understand this so we can work with it. Um, so again, so to have a trauma-informed perspective in my mind is to provide opportunity to feel cared for, for uh, belonging, for inclusion, and to care for others. And then learning and growing become possible again. Right. And I, I really love the way that you delineate between this idea of physical safety versus psychological safety and how our bodies don't know that difference. Like when you get that feeling deep in your core, and, and I think we've all had it um, when you know we're filled with either anxiety or or, you know, shame or whatever's happening to us or feeling literally physically unsafe, as unfortunately some some students have felt um, in, in the past at, at their schools. You're right. You know, learning can't take place. And, and for the adults who have been dealing with this trauma of the past year, and, and sometimes I think that we forget as adults when we're so busy in that decision-making space. I think like when the pandemic hit and you don't even have time to breathe, you're just trying to get through. Just knowing how our bodies are reacting to that level of stress is really important as we think about decision-making moving forward. Yes. And one thing I want to add to what you're describing in such a beautiful way is that it's really a felt sense. Much of our sense of safety is not actually assessed by sort of our prefrontal cortex or our frontal lobe, our thinking centers. It's assessed at many different levels. So you really almost have to recognize your reaction first and then know that something triggered. What we sort of say is the opposite. Oh, that wasn't that scary. I shouldn't have any reaction to that. And sometimes we don't even notice it because we have trained ourselves out of recognizing those reactions. But our bodies know what's safe and what's not safe. And that's what we have to recognize and go with the signals. Absolutely. Um, so in your recent NAIS article, it's called From Survival Mode to Wellness, Healing from Social and Environmental Upheaval. And for anyone who hasn't read this article yet, I highly recommend it. You really assert that school leaders must understand and navigate the traumatic nature of our new social context, a context born from the ongoing pandemic, social injustice, political turmoil, just to name a few. So what steps can heads of school take to support their faculty, students, and families as we move into 2021? Yes, I think that the the first thing that comes to mind is probably something that heads of schools uh, know very well, that when students arrive at their door, they carry everything that they have experienced on the outside. So some of it facilitates learning and growing just beautifully with us, without us doing anything. I remember sometimes seeing really uh, stars emerging in our graduate program when I used to be on faculty and uh, the director of the program. And I kept saying, oh, I can't take any credits for that. <laughs> just, they just come in with such uh, beautiful skills and, and sense of self, etc. But some also, or the same person also brings with them, you know, now it could be on and off for different reasons, much of their experiences that has in fact impacted and, and has them uh, enter the fly-fi free zone, right? This past year, it's 
I think is just such a perfect example. So we must address uh, what happens on the outside so we can ensure that learning actually takes place on the inside. Um, and what we sometimes don't see is that when we don't address it, it's not like a neutral proposition. It's like, oh, we're just gonna you know, keep doing what we're doing, just give it a sense of normalcy. When I enter and I'm distressed about something or my body's feeling unsettled and I'm responded to with non-naming it, so to speak, I make meaning of that. So the meaning could be they don't care or they don't see me or the part of me is not welcomed here. So there's no way of giving someone a sense of care, belonging and um, inclusion, unless we actually attempt to speak to their whole experiences outside of school. The other thing that I wanna add as a piece of information that I think is really helpful is that we were also designed neurologically to overestimate danger. And so one of the ways in which that shows up is that when we don't know something, when we are uncertain, when we have to mind read, when we are not sure, our physiology uh, at base, so to speak, makes us interpret that as a potential danger automatically. So our anxiety goes up. So then another argument for always naming and making sure that we address the totality of what the students' experience are on the outside. So, so the first suggestion that I have for Edsel School is it's obvious from there. Name what's going on and invite those conversation and sharing into your schools. That says, I see you. And that also fosters a sense of belonging, uh, especially when the sense of belonging may have been taken away by the very thing that the student is bringing into school as their experience. So that's another obvious suggestion from there is that to really be open and transparent about uh, what you stand for. Take all the guessing away. Uh, doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. You just have to be clear. Those are two very different things. So to do that, there are two things required. The first is you actually have to know how people experience the world on the one hand and what kind of experience folks have in your school. So you have to ask and you have to ask often. Uh, so there has to be a constant dialogue or sort of, uh, no, no, not really a needs assessment, but a canvassing of how your community is experiencing their world and the school. Mm -hmm. The second, which I have written some of my blogs and writing a lot about, we have to be ready to listen so that you can actually learn from what people tell you. What happens is that, and I know I felt it many times when I was head of a program, that I welcome the feedback and then when that's not, you know, uh, not the feedback I wanted to hear or it goes against all the good intentions and hard work that I put in, my body contracts, right? But I have to keep myself out of that fly fight free zone. Otherwise, I can't really hear and I can't really learn. So, so that takes some practice and, uh, and it's super important. The other suggestion I have is to be very clear about what you can offer and what you cannot offer. So I think sometimes there is a push for, I should be everything to everybody at all times. And we want to, as how programs, that's our joy. We, we come in because we're so passionate and we have so much to give. But the problem with over-promising is that when we then don't deliver, which we can't because we are human, it will feel more like a betrayal. Most people will forgive mistakes. 
most people will understand limitations, but feeling let down is a very different proposition. So to me, being very clear about what you can offer and about your limitations and why is, is really, really important. The, the other thing that comes from this idea that we sort of feel safer when we are in connection and relationship is to really offer folks opportunities for connection. I think schools do that sometimes seamlessly, but sometimes you can further facilitate that by uh, gathering people according to sort of common experiences or interests or identities. I think schools are really good at that. It's just being mindful of using those tools when it feels important. And the other thing that I sort of wanted to put out there is to really give all the parties involved a sense of control. So you do that by, first of all, when they speak to you, speak up to you, make their, their speaking up effective and do something about it. And so that gives them obviously a sense of control. And oftentimes, I always said, I, I jokingly said I had the best counseling program ever because I loved it. But I also always said it was thanks to my students because they told me everything that I should be doing and they had such wisdom. So in fact, making what people tell you uh, effective it's a joy because oftentimes brings wonderful changes for that you have to be flexible but you also have to remain in charge so sometimes when you're too flexible not that that's wrong intrinsically but it means that then you stand for nothing so to speak and then you don't um, you let them making all the decisions you know and, and you lose your role and you use the way in which you're holding space and you're making things happen for them so there's mm -hmm. a is a flexibility but also remaining charge yeah. And, and, you know, what, when I was listening to what you were saying and, and I've, you know, been talking so much to, to heads of schools and, and trustees over the past year and listening to, you know, ways that they're finding to, to create opportunities for connection, even when we've been completely virtual, which has been so difficult. I think one of the things that heads have really struggled with is, you know, I think on the most part, folks are really great at soliciting feedback. They understand the need of, of having folks be heard and valued. But there's always, you know, and during this pandemic, there seems to be like this opposition a little bit where you know, you're listening to faculty who are terrified in some in some areas to go back to school. Right. Because they're they're not safe. They don't feel safe. They're like, we're going to be we're going to get sick. There's there's not enough protocols that we can put in place. It's going to keep everyone safe. We don't want to go back to school. And on the other hand, you have families saying we cannot do this any longer. We need schools to be open. We need our children to go back into the social context. Our families falling apart. We can't balance you know, school and work and everything else. And so I feel like for oftentimes trustees and, and heads have been caught in this place of, of, you know, two very opposing viewpoints that are equally important and, and trying to balance that as they're moving forward. Folks wants to, and again, it comes from such a beautifully intention space to want to come up with the perfect answers and the right answers and be everything to everybody in a way that really cares for every member of the community. And that's a beautiful aspiration and we should always have it and we should always go towards it. But the reality is this process is messy. It's always messy. And if we want to allow for different voices, if we want to allow for diversity of positions, we may not always be able to find the perfect standing ground that is absolutely balanced among all 
to me, that's where the process is so much more important than the outcome. The outcome is very important, of course, but how you get there and how you foster a dialogue and how you stay grounded in what you can and cannot do and stay grounded very much in what you stand for and what you value and you ground your decisions in care is going to have a different impact, even though, again, folks understand that the perfect worlds don't exist and yet they can feel listened to and cared for even when that happens. That's a really great point. Um, I'm so glad that you said that, that, you know, it's how we approach the, the process and, and the dialogue is just as important as, as whatever that outcome will be. And like I said, I've, I've seen, you know, our, our schools have done a, a really stellar job in, in doing that work for the past year. I can't believe it's almost been a year that we've been dealing with the pandemic. And so, you know, caring for their school communities as well as their own families has been emotionally exhausting for so many of our leaders and their administrative teams. So how can school leaders actually support themselves? What can or should self-care look like? As you can imagine, I love these questions. <laughs> uh, of course. So sometimes as leaders, we forget that we are human beings too. Uh, I used to joke and I still sort of only have to, I have a simpler life now, but I used to joke that I work so I can earn money so that I can do self-care, so that I can do my work. <laughs> round and <laughs> round it goes, right? But the reality is that if you want to show up intentionally, if you want to show up the way I feel like I need to show up to do what I want to do, that means I have to think, that means I have to empathize, that means I have to stay in relationship. And so I need to get out of the fly five free zone. It's not that it's not going to happen to me. Of course it is. I'm just as human as everybody else. And that is a beautiful mechanism that will keep happening. But I have to be able to to bring myself back. So for me, self-care has absolutely nothing to do with, oh, you deserve it or you should do it. It's really just an incredibly pragmatic proposition. So a need in my mind is a need is a need is what I always say to myself and to my clients. It's just what it is. So you just need X sleep. That's your physiology. You just need X food. Um, and so you just need to take care of yourself because that's how you're going to show up the way you want to show up. So whenever I'm asked, uh, what are the best ways of taking care of yourself? I always think of this one article I read about working out. What is the best workout? And the answer was the one you do. I'm like, oh, good point. Good point. <laughs> so in some ways, the best self-care is the one we do. Um, but as you were asking the question, I am thinking back. So what did I do when I was a leader in an organization, whether it was a, a national professional organization or whether it was my academic program? The one thing that I noticed in both settings is that being a leader can be lonely. You're taking care of a lot of other people and you have to hold other people's anxieties, other people's stress. And so you don't feel like you really have spaces to be in that process, that part of your own experience. One thing I did is really connecting to colleagues and other leaders uh, with whom I could really share authentically. So in psychology, we talk about name it, feel it, share it, name it, feel it, share it. So you name what's going on internally to yourself, you let yourself feel it, and then you share it with uh, somebody whom you feel comfortable with or a group. And so that really leads us then in turn to feel loved and cared for, and then we can love and care for our colleagues. And that's where we get to feel 
tend to our own needs in community. None of us should be doing this work in isolation or on our own. This doesn't bode well. Um, mm. So that's the first super important thing that I would suggest. The other thing that has come up so much in so many listservs this uh, past year is joy. And I was thrilled to see that. Cultivate joy. So for me, is spending time with friends and especially sharing meals. And so it's taken me a while to figure out how to uh, do that during the pandemic. But really, it's, joy is super important. I, I, I jokingly, I don't sing well at all but when I'm alone in my car and driving someplace I will put music and sing very lightly and loudly and so it doesn't have to be oh my whole life is joyful but there have to be moments of concerted joy where your body's just uh, rejoicing in its own just being Mm -hmm. uh, for me also that time in nature gives me joy being active and moving gives me joy I would say that also do not underestimate for those of us who have a very high bar for what we bring into our work, I do have uh, the strong recognition that sometimes I need my own counseling because things that might not have come up had I done some less interpersonal kind of work or some work that require less of my emotional sort of integrity, maybe I would have never hit those bumps. But having a place that really supports and heals us, it's key to, to has always been key to my own self-care, continues to be on and off. And the last thing I would say that I think is such a, popular notion but I don't always know that people know why that becomes such a popular and effective notion is to have some kind of mindfulness practice that is the best neurological training for resilience literally the mindfulness practice disconnects us from being completely captive of the flight by free zone. There are very specific centers in our brain that get fosters through that. And it doesn't take, you know, hours a day, uh, even just a few minutes. And my own mindfulness practice has shifted and evolved as many times as probably there are days in a year and years in my work. So some level of uh, grounding that becomes developing this balancing parts of neurolo neurology that can uh, help you move back into sort of presence when the fly-fed free zone uh, sort of takes over. And, and I love the way that you frame self-care as a way to show up for your work in the best way possible because sometimes I feel like when, as I'm speaking with with trustees and and heads of school and, and even admin folks it's it's this idea where self-care is almost like the selfish thing it's like I don't have time for that um, when I when I ask heads of school if I'm on the phone with them and I'm like well what are you doing to take care of yourself right now I can almost hear the eye roll like Anne-Marie, I don't have time for self-care. Do you even understand what I'm doing right now and and I love the way you say you know if you want to do a good job, you have to do this. You have to take the time to do self-care because if you don't, you're going to burn yourself out and then you won't be good to anyone. That's exactly it. Absolutely. And you also mentioned there at the end about this idea of self-care also leading to resiliency. And um, that was a beautiful segue actually into my next question for you because we often talk about students having resiliency um, such as, you know, they're trying to solve a difficult math problem or they're having difficult social interactions. But for adults, particularly our school leaders, what does it mean to actually have resiliency during a time of extended crisis like we're in right now? 
You know, it's interesting because sometimes I think we think of resilience as an outcome. I have built resilience and this is my skill forever. And in fact, resilience is very much as a process the way I understand it. So the question is, we are always going to have a human body. We are always going to be human. So we'll always fall down. We'll always feel the pinch. So the question is not, oh, how can I not fall down and navigate all these waves seamlessly? It's really the question is, okay, do you... Uh, what do you do after you fall down? That's the resiliency. What do you do after your body is being your wonderful human body? So for me, resilience is also a lot about courage. I speak a lot about training for courage. Um, it's the ability to remain present, to think, empathize when when I'm scared because my flight by free zone gets uh, ignited. So how do I have enough courage to stay with it? Um, it's also a lot of self-compassion when I screw up because then, of course, that experience, the berating uh, is experienced by my own body an attack and so it sends me right back into the five flat free zone and so self-compassion for when I screw up is key that took me a long time to develop and so all of these things you know you're not doing it's like oh this is so kind to others no I'm doing it for me I'm doing it for my own health and I'm doing it for my own effectiveness so on a very practical level the first step is noticing it so did you notice that you just fell down? Did you notice that you are burned out? Did you notice that there is a level of stress that's becoming unsustainable? We have trained ourselves out of noticing. So first we have to notice it and then we actually have to do something about it. So one way to do it is to really ask yourself really often, how are you doing? And then you honor the answer to the question. The other thing is, a big suggestion to go slower. So this is the problem with the, uh, the society as we have developed it. We constantly trigger ourselves and each other into entering a fly-by-free zone because we, we feel so behind all the time. The disasters that we have created should have been resolved yesterday. And so the problem with that, it creates a never-ending sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. And that is just absolutely not sustainable. And it also yields really poor work, which is just going to yield more urgency and more disasters to solve. And so slowing down is key in so many ways. But the way I'm in it in this specific context is really slowing down moment to moment. Breathe, give your mind space to think and feel again and come back. And even if you have to do it a million times a day, which you will, begin training yourself to go slower, do one thing at a time and give yourself to it. First of all, that drains you so much less. Second, it brings your best self to it. And third, it's really the only way we function. (laughs) (laughs) And when we don't go slower and are sort of overwhelmed by the urgency of it all, uh, we are just in we only have access to a very small part of ourselves. So neither noticing and uh, then honoring the noticing, honoring the answer of how you're doing, neither to go slower is something that you accomplish as an outcome. Now you can see why for me, resilience is a process more than an outcome. Yep. So resilience is a relationship. You cultivate it. And then how do we teach other people? How do we model for other people how to cultivate resilience knowing that we are vulnerable, tender human beings. And so we'll always need it. And, and I love that you said that, you know, we need to to slow down, 
to sort of counteract that sense of urgency? Because I, I know that so many of our schools, you know, both their boards and, and their leadership teams have felt that incredible sense of urgency over the past year as they've tried to pivot through what seemed like an endless stream of of information and, and having to change direction constantly. But that slowing down, I think, just probably would also improve decision making, would improve some relationship building, which I think is so key right now as as we're kind of moving into this this new stage of of the pandemic and, and everything else that's going on. It's not just the pandemic. It's 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 you know, social injustice, it's systemic racism, it's, it's politics, it's everything. Um, so I think, you know, taking that time, as you said, is, is so crucial. So before I let you go, I, I know that I've, I've taken so much of your time, but this has been such a great conversation. So just quickly, in terms of health and well-being, what kinds of questions should independent school boards be asking themselves right now? So I think my answer at this point is predictable, and I hope so, which means that the main concept is sinking in and is already becoming your own. So I will give you, there are four points that come to mind, and I'll go through them relatively quickly, and we can always follow up. The first thing, assess your collective levels of reactivity. This is your first question. When do your uh, fly, fight, freeze reactions come up? When do they show up? how exactly they manifest as a group, and how do these reactions have become policies? How do these reactions have become procedures? In other words, how have they become institutionalized? And we can see lots of ways in which that happens in, in institutions. And so the opposite question of that, what would it mean to center empathy, love, and belonging, right? So not just intellectual learning, not just financial viability, certainly, Again, as a program director in the past, I understand the importance, of course, of intellectual learning, of course, of financial viability, but it's really problematic when those become what we center. So what would it mean to center empathy, love, and belonging? And then again, how do these then seep into policies and procedures? How does empathy, love, and belonging become institutionalized? That's the revolutionary Part. We are also, and I know that there was a huge shift while I was happened while I was in academia about halfway through it. We are very outcome based, right? All mm -hmm. the outcome measures, and we forget that what gives endless meaning, fulfillment, sense of possibility to our lives, our values, not goals. Goals are the outcome oriented parts, but we have to really center our work on our values. And so uh, that is uh, a strong suggestion. There is something called acceptance and commitment therapy that really works on helping folks live a, val uh, live a valued life, even when things are rocky. So that's a, that's a really beautiful question that folks can ask themselves. And then I wanted to leave you with my magic question. I call it my magic question, which I, you know, I um, teach all my clients. And it's a very simple question. What do I need? Mm. What does my community need? What do I need at a human level right now in this very moment? And now can I meet these needs, mine included? Mm. That is a magical question. I, I like that question a lot. And I also you know, appreciate that, that focus on values, because that's something that we've been talking about throughout, you know, the past year is, you know, how as, as a school, do you stay centered to your mission, vision, and values as, as these sort of external forces are acting on your school that are so out of your control? Yes. Eleanor, thank you so much for your time today. Um, this has been a fantastic conversation, and I know the insights that you've shared will be so helpful to our members. 
Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Trustee Table. We've included some great resources on some of the areas we discussed at NAIS.org, and you can also keep an eye on that page for new podcast episodes. Please be sure to listen, rate, review, and subscribe to a new episode each month. Thank you for listening.